Some things are better together, aren't they? Uh, Peanut butter and jelly, s'mores and campfires, mac and cheese, cookies and milk, bacon and eggs. Now, I I understand bacon goes with everything, but, you know, (laughs) eggs for the win, mornings and coffee, road trips and audio books. In the last few weeks, we've been in a sermon series on our Sunday morning gatherings called Better Together, and we've been encouraged and challenged to pursue biblical community as we've learned that we all accomplish more together. And today I'd kind of like to wrap things up, as Matthew indicated, just sharing a few words of encouragement. I want to start by uh, sharing with you an Aesop's fable. Aesop's fables were stories that are credited to Aesop, who was a slave and storyteller believed to have lived in ancient Greece back in the 600 B.C.s. One such fable is called The Four Oxen and the Lion. It goes like this. A lion was uh, used to prowling about a field in which four oxen used to, to live. Many a time he tried to attack them, but whenever he came near, they turned their tails to one another so that whichever way he approached them, he was met by the horns of one of them. At last, however, they fell a quarreling among themselves, and each went off to pasture alone in a separate corner of the field. Then the lion attacked them one by one and soon made an end of all four. The moral of the fable is united we stand, divided we fall. God's design for his people is that we would stand united, knowing full well that divided we fall. But sadly, since the dawn of creation, mankind has continued a long, slow, steady downward spiral towards separation and division. Cain murdered his brother Abel in a fit of jealous anger, and the rest is history, as they say. We continue to divide over race, culture, ethnicity, gender, age, class, race, religion, geographic boundaries, claims of ownership over natural resources, and a, and a hundred other factors. I mean, just think about our relatively recent history and how divided we've become in this country. You are either Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, Green Party, or Independent, and we disagree about everything. (laughs) I might suggest immigration and border control, relations between the police and African Americans, gun control, wokeness, climate change, the economy, Federal Reserve Bank, Wall Street, and the very recent banking failures, abortion, health care, and access to birth control, education, school vouchers, and common core, the U.S. tax code, foreign policy, just war, the national debt, domestic spying, prison reform, stem cell research, the LGBTQ community and transgender rights, net neutrality, the government's response to the COVID pandemic, just to name a few. And this is not to mention that there are conservatively at least 10,000 Protestant Christian denominations, and we are divided on our beliefs about everything. Inspiration of Scripture, the virgin birth, who Jesus is, the scope of the atonement, the resurrection, the rapture, and the second coming of Christ, the eternal state, the eternal fate of the lost, water baptism, communion, foot washing. What is that, many ask? Grace, faith and works, justification and sanctification, justice and mercy, predestination and free will, and the person and work of the Holy Spirit, just to name a few. You get the picture, right? 
It's likely that if you grew up in a Protestant Christian tradition, if your early childhood religious training was Protestant in nature, if you had some, that you grew up in a church that disagreed with a church that came out from a church with which it disagreed and so forth. The vineyard, 40 years ago, came out of the Calvary Chapel movement because of a disagreement between John Wimber, founder of the vineyard, and Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel movement. And if we could drill down to the gut-level honesty and admit to one another, we really all feel pretty much more comfortable with people just like ourselves, don't we? That's, we just kind of, that's human nature. We, we like being around people like ourselves. So how can we possibly more fully experience being united in true community? It's a challenge, isn't it? Well, I'm going to suggest that we look to the Jesus way as a hopeful way forward. What did Jesus do when he came uh, to the earth and, and wanted to usher in the kingdom of God? What, what method did he employ? He called 12 of his followers into true community. You see, Christianity, following Jesus as his disciple, is very personal, but never individualistic. Jesus calls us first to himself and then to one another in community. And so at the launch of his ministry, he selected a group of 12 men that would later be called the apostles to live together in community for three and a half years. And they were radically different in terms of their lifestyle, their values, their background, personality, and temperament. They were a very unlikely community group. You have Peter, Andrew, James, and John. They were hard working, weather-worn, blue-collar tradesmen who owned a fishing business. Uh, Peter was impetuous and outspoken, always uh, speaking before he thought, making a mess of things. Andrew was a deferring um, man. James and John had flaming tempers, were probably racist. They were nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. James, the son of Alphaeus, or James the Left, was a total unknown. His brother Thaddeus was intense and violent. Matthew was a tax collector who was fiercely hated on moral grounds, would have been considered the worst of spawn scum at the day because of his uh, work. Um, They were basically uh, sanctioned by Rome um, thievery. They, They stole money from people. Philip had a warm heart, skeptical, doubting mind. Simon was a zealot. That means he was a fanatical Jewish nationalist who hated the Romans. Today we would call him uh, a patriot, a member of the Proud Boys, or a terrorist. (laughs) Thomas was a Gentile outsider. He was from Greece. He doubted everything. Bartholomew was from the upper crust. We'd call him the 1%. He lived a life of privilege and ease, having come from royal blood and noble birth. Judas was an embezzler, probably saw this little band of 12 as his opportunity to enhance his personal aspirations. And even though he later betrayed Jesus, he was still included as part of the 12. Wow, you talk about a diverse community group. You could not get together a group of 12 more dissimilar men in terms of their place and station in life. But Jesus saw the gold in them. 
He saw their passion, and especially for the kingdom of God. What they didn't know is just that over the next few years, Jesus was going to take that passion and reshape it and retrain it to be useful for him. Now, when the Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost and birthed the church, they were empowered to continue the ministry that they'd begun with Jesus, to keep doing what they'd been doing for the last three and a half years. And this model of community life together provided the foundation for what the early church experienced. And I'd like to reread the text that the, that the book of Acts uses to describe that early church experience. This is where Matthew began the series uh, a number of weeks ago in Acts 2, verse 41 to 47. Those who believe Peter uh, were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the sharing of meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshipped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity, all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. I want to call your attention this morning to verse 42 that reads, The believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to sharing in meals, and to prayer. Now, the word translated fellowship in your English Bible is the original word in the Greek language koinonia. Now, that's not the name of one of the islands in Hawaii, but it means to simply be in agreement with one another, to be united in purpose, to serve alongside each other. I understand, though, today... The word fellowship is kind of old-fashioned. How many of you used it in the last week? <laughs> Not many of us, right? We, we would more likely say communion or community. The thought of sharing is at the heart of the word. And we see a striking description of the kind of community that the early church had uh, in Acts 2. It had a common entrance, repentance and turning from sin, water baptism and a filling of the Holy Spirit the presence of signs and wonders and miracles, explosive church growth through powerful outreach in the community, sacrificial generosity, the meeting of needs, embracing the value of large and small group gatherings in the temple and from house to house, the sharing of meals and the sharing of communion, the Lord's Supper together. And that life was punctuated with joy and gladness. And then lastly, uh, the life that they had spilled out into the towns and cities and villages around them where they lived and worked and did life. So this fellowship, community, was the glue that united a very diverse group of people together, modeled by the apostles and now uh, as the model for the early church. It's often the case, isn't it, when we see somebody who does something with apparent ease, 
a musician who plays well, athletes who compete, masons who lay brick and stone, artists who paint, seamstresses who sew, programmers who write code, accountants who balance spreadsheets. We'd, we'd look at, at them having mastered their craft because they do basic things over and over. In fact, they do it so well that many of you might think, oh, I could do that, or I could do that, when in fact, no, actually we can't. <laughs> because they do those fundamental skills uh, with regularity over their life. And so I'm going to suggest that if we're going to follow the Jesus way into community, living the life that's, that was modeled by the apostles and that is described here in the book of Acts, then there are at least five basic steps that we're going to need to repeat regularly to learn this craft, to learn this skill. They're simple, but they're not easy. Okay? Number one, we have to suspend our judgments. One of the first things I notice when I look at Jesus in the four Gospels is that all people matter to him. A lonely, socially ostracized leper, a centurion in the Roman army, a psychotic, unhoused man who lived in a cemetery a sick, financially depleted, hopeless woman, a prideful Jewish religious official, wealthy, well-connected blue bloods, poor working-class commoners, the educated and the uneducated, those who were outside the religious circle and those trained in the synagogue. If we read the Gospels with an open mind, we'll discover time and time again in both his words and his works Jesus declares God the Father's inexhaustible, never-ending love for all people everywhere. Community is not possible without non-judgmental acceptance of people, and especially those who are different than ourselves. You see, when we judge people, what we really do is we set ourselves up as morally or spiritually superior to others. We would never say that, but that's what we do. And frankly, we're not superior to any human being because we're all created in the image of God, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. And so being united in community, being better together, means that we first intentionally suspend all reasons that we might elevate ourselves in moral or spiritual pride over somebody else. Gender, race, religion, sexual orientation, place and station in life, socioeconomic patterns, uh, education, material possessions, their irritating habits and idiosyncrasies that drive you crazy, <laughs> their attitudes, their personality, their temperament, their opinion about debatable things, the things they post on Facebook. We see them as equals. Now, friends, this doesn't mean that we necessarily agree with everything they do, think, say, and believe. That's not what community means. But we certainly don't think of ourselves as morally or spiritually superior to them because we have the inside truth. Our classmates, our neighbors, our co-workers, friends, the people in the apartment upstairs, the neighbor, neighbor with a yappy dog who poops on the sidewalk, right next to you, the waitress at your table at Avani's or Blue Margaritas or Olive Garden, wherever you eat today, the, the clerk that's checking you out at Walmart or Hy-Vee, your employers, your employees, your customers, 
people that you can't stand, even your enemies. We don't elevate ourselves in judgment over them. Think about it. That original group of 12, I mean, they were radically different, but they were united. And in this sense, community is not uniformity, but it's unity in the midst of incredible diversity. God's not interested in uniformity, that the, that, the, that the church all thinks and talks and looks and smells and acts the same, but that we are united while we are incredibly diverse. In a big tent church like the Vineyard, which is what we frequently call ourselves, we're united on essentials. The king pole that holds up the tent, God exists, Jesus his son is the Messiah, and Jesus died and was buried and rose again for the saving of the soul of every person on the planet. That's the king pole that holds up the big tent. So we're united in essentials. But then we have liberty on non-essentials, which is just about everything else. It's not essential to salvation. It's important, but it's not essential. And so we have liberty. We have a, a wide tolerance for diversity in what we believe about all those things that I just mentioned. And then we have love in everything. Love is the oil that keeps the community life well lubricated. It's like the oil in your engine keeps all the parts from seizing up. Love is the oil that keeps the community life lubricated, as Dale shared with us last week. So number one, suspend our judgments and prejudices. Number two, learn to listen. If community is going to grow, it's going to be really important for you to remember this. Stop giving advice. And don't do all the talking. Rather, learn to listen. Giving advice devalues people in two ways. It offers cheap and easy solutions to often very complicated and messy life situations. And secondly, it doesn't respect other people's ability to trust God and figure a way out as they lean into Jesus. If others want your advice, and you're close enough in a relationship, they'll ask for it. Otherwise, just practice listening. The Apostle James gave us this instruction in his letter. You must be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Two ears, one mouth, so that we get the message. <laughs> listen twice as much as we talk. Over the years, I've just seen that one of the most powerful ways to express love and care to people and for community to grow is to genuinely listen to people. If we listen with non-judgmental acceptance, we respect them for who they are, what they think and feel and believe. And then over time, you build a bridge of trust that at the right time in the right way, the Holy Spirit may invite you to cross and speak into their life but not until. Several things in, in the process about listening. Give full attention to the people you're talking to. You ever been in a conversation where you could tell the other person was just waiting for you to shut up so they could continue their monologue to you? <laughs> don't be that person, <laughs> okay? Uh, be fully there and don't just think about what you're going to say when they're done talking. Actually listen to them. And then, as a way of helping you out, 
reflect what it is you're hearing. This is called active listening, the skill of radar listening. And so you're listening as other people share for not just the content, but the feeling and belief underneath of it. So you might say something like, let me see if I understand you correctly. Or, so the major concern that you have right now is, or what I hear you saying is, or here's the one I like to practice uh, most frequently. So you're feeling blank because of blank. You're feeling blank because of blank. Or it appears to me that, and this level of active, empathic listening shows people that you've really heard and understood them. You value them for who they are. Doesn't necessarily mean you agree, but that you've given them the gift of being heard and understood. And what listening does at this level is it values people's stories. And I think God wants us to honor the stories that are all around us. We're all, and we're a story in progress too, right? Uh, take a genuine interest in people's stories. Where they're from, where they're going, who they love, who loves them what they dream about, what their passions are, what gives them joy, where it hurts right now, and why, and what they've been through, where they hope to go. Genuine, caring listeners are in short supply in our culture. Thirdly, ask sensitively timed questions. As community begins to grow, we can ask sensitively timed questions in the right way at the right time. And when we do, it expresses compassion and care and, and genuine concern. And if we ask something other than a yes or no questions, and all parents know what this is like when you ask your kid, how was school today? Fine. <laughs> Did you do this and so? Yes, no. And, and every parent's heart yearns to hear more than that. Uh, so don't ask yes and no questions if we expect community to grow. Um, if we ask a few well-chosen questions and ask them in a non-threatening way, it can invite spiritual discussion and disclosure of the deep heart. It'll help us connect with people at the appropriate spot on their spiritual journey, and it will allow the Holy Spirit to, to uh, help us gauge where are they at. Are, are they at a place where I can share, or you know, um, do I need to, to be more cautious and hold back? You might ask somebody, well, where are you at in your spiritual journey? Rather than presupposing you already know. If you could ask God for one thing today, what would it be? Can you help me understand your disappointment with God or the church? If someone were to ask you, what's a real Christian? What would you say? Have you ever felt God's closeness, his presence, or his help? And when was that? Where are you at in your relationship with God today? So questions that ask for more than a yes or no answer put the other person in the driver's seat of the relationship, and it allows them to reveal as much or as little as they're comfortable with. And it, it honors who they are. Active listening and asking sensitively timed questions will be like fertilizer to your relationship. Number four, invest in relationships by crossing lines of difference. Now, several weeks ago, Pastor Matthew encouraged us through the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke 13, and his point was to emphasize hospitality. No doubt many of you are familiar with that story. You've heard it once. It sticks in your gray matter forever. That's the way Jesus designed it. 
And I love what Matthew shared. He urged us to, to host the presence of God in us as we are serving others. That was a, an interesting insight that you shared, Matthew. I appreciated that. Um, he urged us to host the presence of God and start with our actual, literal neighbors. Put ourselves in proximity to them and serve them. And that was really good. And he, he made it clear that morning that the shifting tides in culture today necessitate this kind of hospitality because the attractional model of just open up the doors on Sunday and people will flood in, it's, it's, it's losing its appeal. We're grateful for all, all of you who actually did that at one time, if maybe even today your first time. But uh, practicing hospitality with people in, in their orbit, their neighborhood, is, is actually the, the message of the parable, uh, becoming Jesus incarnate to our neighbors. But the parable doesn't stop with just our literal neighbors. You understand that? It encourages us to actually cross lines of racial, social, religious, and cultural boundaries to, to touch people not like ourselves. Because in the context, hundreds of years of animosity had been growing between the Jews and their neighboring, literal neighbors, Samaritans, whom the Jews despised of racial as half-breeds. And this racial prejudice was spilling out into the boundaries of religious and social intolerance as well. And so by the time of Jesus, the hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans had grown very, very hot. But the Samaritan, in the story, took a colossal risk when he saw the Jewish man bleeding by the side of the road. He stopped, had compassion, he treated the man's wounds, transported him to the local inn. You know the story. He spent the evening administering care and paid the bill with a promise of future reimbursement. And so Jesus invites us to cross boundaries of race and religion and culture and, and uh, social conventionalities and to build a relationship with someone who's not like us at all. In fact, someone with whom we may seriously disagree. And, it, and this has to be something we do intentionally. Somebody who's a different race, a different culture, different ethnicity, a different political persuasion, a different religion altogether. They might be the parents of your children's friends, a couple in the apartment next door or the literal neighbor across the road who's now practicing Ramadan, a person you see at the gym. We could volunteer at one of the local ministries in our, in our town that reach across strict social boundaries, ministries like Southside Mission or Dream Center or Salvation Army or the Midwest Food Bank. Now, I understand this takes time, it takes money, it takes a willingness to be inconvenienced. We have to put ourselves in this spot, but that's part of what the, the beauty of the parable is teaching. Take that risk and invest in relationships that cross lines of difference. You see, it's relatively easy to be friends with most of the people in this room. Now, I know some of you are a little harder than others, but no, I just, I'm just kidding. I was like, see if you're still listening to me, you know. And I know I'm not the easiest guy to live with, just ask my wife of <laughs> 47 years now. But um, that, was just, that was all just a side joke to kind of bring some relief here. <laughs> I know that it, it takes effort to reach across those kinds of boundaries uh, and establish community. But if, if we're going to be the kind of community that the disciples modeled and that we see in Acts 2, then this has to be part of the fabric of our life. Lastly, number five, I'm going to encourage you to trust Jesus 
to do his job. Jesus' tribe is really, really big all around the globe, and we can trust him to manage it. We are not called to do his job. Let me, let me share it this way. You see, we want, we want to grow the church and to let him uh, grow disciples and build community. But Jesus would have us grow community and make disciples and trust him to grow the church. We get it backwards. Jesus said he would build his church. And this means we do not need to be God's moral police force on the earth. That is the job of the Holy Spirit. We build relationships. We grow in community and trust Jesus to build his church. On one occasion, was, he was teaching about what life in God's kingdom was like. Jesus told a parable that we now today know as the weeds and the wheat. And you probably remember it if you've read the Gospels. A farmer planted good seed in his field. An enemy came that night and sold bad seed. Crop began to grow. The weeds and the wheat both grew up together. And the farmer's workers came and asked the farmer, should we pull out the weeds? And the farmer, what did he say? No, because you're going to uproot the wheat if you do. Let both grow together until the harvest. The kingdom contains wheat, people of the kingdom, and it contains weeds, people from the evil one. And Jesus said, let them both coexist side by side until the harvest. And then he said, I'll sort them out. It's not our job to do the sorting before the harvest. So why is it the church has a penchant to figure out who's in and who's out? We, that's not the job he called us to do. He called us to build community and let the wheat and the weeds grow together. People are never our enemy. The enemy is the enemy. And let me just say this. God's kingdom, his community, is far bigger and more inclusive than you could ever imagine. And you can thank God for that because it includes you. <laughs> we might not have made the entrance requirements if, a, if the list were narrow. It's not our job to pull up the weeds, to fix or correct people with whom we disagree. Everyone's least efforts in the kingdom are rewarded. Jesus said, you give a cup of cold water to somebody, you're going to get a reward matter what they might believe or practice or think or value or prioritize, their effort in the kingdom will be rewarded. So let's let Jesus sort it out at the end of the age. Well, friends, uh, I encourage you that life in God's kingdom, growing together, being better together in community, is, is a practice of these five things repeatedly. Left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. Suspend my moral judgments. Learn to listen. Ask genuinely time questions. Invest in relationships that cross lines of difference and trust Jesus to do his job and then start all over and do it all over again. And that will keep you busy until Jesus comes back. And when we do these things, we're going to discover a wonderful momentum towards being better together and will grow to more fully become that church that is so beautifully described in Acts 2. Jesus, we've got such a long way to go. Would you just be patient with us, Lord, and gracious to us as we stumble our way around trying to more fully experience the kind of community life that we see so beautifully painted? And we're not naive that, that it wasn't all that great in the sense. By Acts 6, four chapters later, they're having a big fight. And then... Paul had to write letters and straighten out the 
feuding churches and some brothers ate with other brothers and others didn't. I mean, we understand that it was plagued with problems 30 years later after it started. We're not naive to that. But Lord, we want to practice being better together. The kind of church that, that is united together in the spirit of the living Jesus. So help us, God. We're sorry for where we've been small-minded or rigid or where we've tried to do your job for you and we've not minded to do our job. God, would you give us the grace and patience and skill to to build community a a day, a, a week, a month at a time so that the beautiful things we see that you want to accomplish when men and women are living in in unity that, that could actually happen among us here too. Thank you.